good evening. Uh, it, it's uh, a great pleasure to welcome uh, Manuel Barcia this evening. My name is Gad Human. I'm one of the organizers, along with Steve Cushion and uh, Kate Quinn, who is unfortunately unable to join us. Uh, but we're very glad that Manuel has been able to join us. Uh, as some of you know, he is a professor of Latin American history at uh, the University of Leeds. He specializes in the history of slavery, the slave trade, Cuba, of course. Uh, and has written a variety of, of very interesting uh, books and indeed articles, uh, one of which I can personally recommend, the, the, the Great African Slave Revolt in Cuba in 1825. I haven't read his most recent one, which is on slave soldiers in Bahia and Cuba, but he is, uh, he's, he's busy, and he's come, across, come up with this rather interesting uh, paper. Before I give you the, the full title, let me just remind you, those of you who aren't familiar with it, that the procedure is that, that Manuel will speak for about 45 minutes. Um, so Manuel's title is uh, White, Cannibal White Cannibalism in the Slave Trade. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for coming. Um, I'm going to, I want to say a couple of things before I start properly. The first one is that um, uh, if you came here thinking that this topic was going to improve your day, probably you're wrong. Um, this is, this is a, a one-off paper that I wrote because I found um, a case that, that was really without parallel. I have never seen anything like this before. I tried to give these uh, documents to plenty of people. No one wanted to do it, so eventually after seven years I ended up doing it myself. Um, so it's a, a much longer paper than what, I want, uh, what I'm going to, to uh, present today. I'm just going to try to give you the story and, and um, some of, of the methodological issues that, that uh, um, are related to the way I approach it as well, but if I, I'm, I'm happy to, to talk at the end about uh, more theoretical or methodological issues as well, because I think that is, is uh, important. I, I, I could introduce you to a history of cannibalism, and, and especially in the Atlantic and all that, but I, I suppose you can read that. It's going to be easier for you. Um, so, I think five minutes late. At dawn break on the 23rd of November, 1837, the HMA snake, under the command of Captain Alexander Milne, spotted a suspicious brig in the horizon, just off Cuba's westernmost point, the Cape of San Antonio. On the brig, as the body of one of her white passengers, who had died of an African fever, was buried at sea, the sailors saw a large cruiser ship in the distance a circumstance that led the captain to give orders to find an escape route as quickly as possible. The getaway attempt was short-lived as the fast-sailing British cruiser soon caught up with the slave traders. Upon boarding the ship, Captain Milne reported that the brig, naming the papers and the log as the Arrogante, was crammed with African slaves kept in terrible conditions. In a private letter to his brother, written a couple of months later, Miller referred to the Africans on board as actual skeletons with death in their countenances. Milne, a seasoned sailor who had encountered several slave vessels before, confessed to his shock as never before by the sight of dead children lying on the deck, while others were in the last stage, all calling for food and water and pointing to their mouths. Without wasting any time, Captain Milne said Lieutenant Robert Boyle Miller to take control of a ship as price master and to guide it immediately to Montego Bay in order to disembark the Africans before continuing course towards Sierra Leone 
where the vessel and the crew were to be brought before the Anglo-Portuguese Court of Mixed Commissions. They could not be um, just in, in Jamaica. I'm happy to discuss this later. The Arrogante, with a crew of 35 men, mostly Portuguese, Portuguese, probably all Portuguese, had obtained a human cargo 40 days before from the notorious Spanish slave dealer Pedro Blanco in River Gallinas in the Upper Guinea coast. 470 Africans, many of them children and young adults, had been crowded on the small deck of the brig and sent on their way to Cuba, almost certainly consigned to the house of Pedro Martinez and Company of Havana and Cadiz. When the ship came across the HMS Snake, 64 of them had died. And by the time the Africans were landed in Montego Bay 11 days later, 74 more had passed away in spite of all the attentions given to them by the assistant surgeon of the snake who had accompanied Lieutenant Miller to the ship. After, after landing, 66 most of, more of them died uh, within the, a week or two. Upon their arrival in Jamaica, John Robbie, the collector of customs at Montego Bay, who was the first to receive them, was just as perplexed as Captain Milne had been before him. In a letter sent to Commodore Peter John Douglas months later, Robbie recounted the horrible state of disease and emaciation prevailing among them, explaining that the tides of many were not thicker than his own wrist. More alarming, however, was a revelation that many of the slaves made soon afterwards. In various occasions, upon their arrival and over the next few months, a considerable number of them, mostly children and young adults, told repeatedly and to different people, that one of the Africans on board the Arrogante had been murdered and that subsequently the sailors had cooked pieces of his body and served them with rice to the rest of the Africans. Although Robbie, Lieutenant Miller, and others who would come into contact with them remained skeptical throughout, others, including the collector of Coston and Lucia, at Lucia, a coastal town west of Montego Bay, Lyndon Howard Evelyn, the senior magistrate of Hanover, Alexander Campbell, and the special justice of peace in the same place, Hall Pringle, were convinced <coughs> that the young Africans were telling the truth and denouncing an event that had indeed taken place. Among these horrors, the horrors I described, cannibalism was but just one. Rapes, torturings and beatings, sadistic murders, and another accusation of cannibalism, this one directed towards the ship sailors, filled page after page of the position. Perhaps due to the challenging nature of the accusation and to the fact that, as Vincent Brown has contended, this inquest, and I quote, laid the access, boundaries, and values of community, it took between seven and eight months for the British authorities in Jamaica <clears throat> to give enough credence to the testimony of these young Africans as to start a proper investigation that eventually involved them, as well as the colonial office and the admiralty. During that time, the Africans had been first taken care of and then Hasley apprentice within the parishes of St. James and Hanover in northwestern Jamaica. The story of these children and young men and women told was simply harrowing. According to many of them, a few days before being seized by the British man of war, one of them, a grown-up man called Mina, who according to all descriptions given by them was not a black man but a yellow man, was forced to drink alcohol and then after being taken behind a sail on the bow, he was slaughtered. Although some minor specifics of the testimonies in, of these witnesses are inconsistent, as you <coughs> would expect, most of them agreed that the man cried out for help as he was being killed and that his blood remained on deck until the next day. 
Some witnesses claimed that his head, hands, and feet were cut off and thrown overboard, and then the rest of him was cut into little square pieces and served to the rest of the Africans on board as food. Furthermore, in a very revealing testimony, one witness stated that Mina's heart and liver were also cooked and then eaten by the Portuguese sailors. If we assume the witnesses were telling the truth, as Evelyn, Paul, and Pringle were convinced they were, then the details given by some of them clearly pointed out to an act of barbarism that was probably the result of the superstition of the Portuguese sailors. The fact that they had embarked an African man who was different, by all accounts, and possibly suffering from albinism, this is just a speculation, obviously, may have been the main reason behind this heinous crime. In various cultures, albinos have been traditionally been the subjects of superstitions that include, but are not limited to, considering them as carrying bad luck and missing powers. Either of these two, um, or, or many others, uh, could have plausibly led to Mina's assassination. Likewise, the likely consumption of his heart and liver by some of the vessel's crew point toward results of magical or ritualistic sacrifice rather than to a cold-blooded sadistic murder, as it was a custom in the slave trade, that belonged to a modern war, to a modern war that in the wars of Vincent Brown again was still in many ways an enchanted one. Regardless of whether they indeed, there were indeed cannibalistic practices on board of the Arrogante, by examining this case through a combination of ethnographic and microhistorical methods, it is possible to challenge the omniscient British colonial narrator's voice and to offer a new hypothesis into the reasons why the Jamaican authorities, and this is my main concern, by the way, failed to fully investigate the accusation of cannibalism, using the resulting court records to reenact trials of the past with the aim of reaching different conclusions is neither desirable nor practical. Instead, an alternative interpretation of, to those offered by the Jamaican authorities who were in charge of the investigation allow for a critical reflection on how cultural and ethical conventions can be shaped and reshaped across cultures. In this specific case, with respect to those of the slave ship crew, the African slaves, and the Jamaican magistrates. Cannibalism, as other inhumane sort of behavior, was a practice associated not with Europeans, but with the other African, Amerindian, Australasian peoples. To the Jamaican magistrates, who interrogated the arrogant Africans, any admission that the white man could practice cannibalism, as a matter of fact, they never used this word during the, the, the trial, during the, the investigation, was almost a cultural impossibility that was likely to be rejected once, at once as a threat to their moral values and laws. In the words of Marcus Rediger, cannibalism was one of the idioms through which the war called the slave trade was waged. Europeans had long justified the slave trade and the slavery more broadly by saying that Africans were savage man-eaters who must be civilized by exposure to the most advanced life and thought of Christian Europe." End of a quote. Such a discourse represented Western civilization as a pace setter, both in technological advancement and moral principles, where barbaric practices like cannibalism were a thing of the past. As we know this is not the truth, but anyway. Um, more to the point, cannibalism has often been discussed with reference to pre-industrial societies, and especially in the case of African peoples, it has been a constant, irrespective, and until today, by the way, irrespectively of their particular origins, cultural traditions, and relationships with other cultures and societies. It has consistently been considered as a marker for so-called uncivilized peoples, contrary to morality and natural law. By focusing on the events of this slave ship, 
it is possible to offer a different complementary historical narrative that reveals a reversal of roles. One in which Europeans appear as flesh-eating savages and Africans as a civilized party. A version of history that may have been, and this is pure speculation, I should admit, may have been even closer to reality than the traditional one which regularly portray Africans as cannibals. Unlike contemporary anthropologists and ethnographers, dealing with similar instances, historians whose subjects are long dead have traditionally been forced to rely on questions asked by other people. In this case, Jamaican magistrates, who were not, and I should stress this, particularly keen for reasons discussed discuss later, I will get there, to listen to the African versions of the events. This was not by any means a new phenomenon in the slavery-tainted Atlantic War, especially in the British Atlantic. While examining the aftermath of the 1692 slave conspiracy in Barbados, in a recent article published in American Historical Review, Jason Sharples was keen to indicate that local magistrates could only listen imperfectly to the voices of the Africans who testified before them. And I quote, they evaluated informants' ideas and recorded aspects of them that align with their own notions of possible forms of insurrection, end of a quote. In many ways, they did the same more than a century later in Jamaica. When they first refused to accept that the arrogant sailors could be capable of undertaking such a barbaric and immoral practice as cannibalism, and they, they did this a priori, and then when they decided to focus their attention on what they considered to be the main event or the cooking and serving of the African man flesh to the other Africans. As a result, they willfully ignored the second more troubling accusation of cannibalism, which pertained to the Portuguese sailors, not the Africans, eating the heart and the liver of Mina. In doing so, they also refused to give any credibility to the testimony of the African children and young adults who witnessed the alleged butchery. Instead, they chose to believe the testimonies of a small minority of Africans whose accounts were unbalanced and highly questionable, as you will see in a second, including those of Bamboo and Kaikola, who denied ever seeing or hearing the events, and those of Kai and Tom, who did not have access to the upper deck and thus should not have been considered as witnesses at all. All in all, they struggled to make sense, according to their predisposed understanding of the world, of an event that presented that same world before them turned upside down. Inevitably, one must wonder whether this was an isolated, excessively violent event in what it was, by all means, a war of cruelty and impunity. However, repeated allusions to white cannibalism, which I discussed here, but I won't be able to discuss uh, uh, with you and, and at the moment, allusions that have not gone unnoticed by historians, I should say, and the continuous fears of being cooked and served as food that were felt by the Africans who were about to embark on the transatlantic middle passage throughout 400 years of history, point to the plausible prospect that sheltered by distance, isolation, and lawlessness while at sea, many other similar instances may have indeed taken place between the 16th and the 19th centuries. The slave ship in the middle passage then became the perfect state for the perfect crime, one that could not be proven and from which its perpetrators were likely to suffer no repercussions of any kind. Of the 266 Africans who survived the Arrogantes ordeal, 24 were brought before various Jamaican officers to testify um, in the case. Since adult men and women were kept below deck during the entire Middle Passage, among those who saw Mina's murder, there were only children and young adults of both sexes, all of whom appeared vastly distressed during the depositions. As they faced their own individual traumas, they show a steely resolution 
first by repeatedly denouncing the murder they have witnessed, and then by insisting in having their voices heard before the Jamaican magistrates, even when they didn't want to let them talk. These children and young adults had all been embarked at the infamous slave factory of Gallinas, the one I mentioned before, belonging to Pedro Blanco. In many ways, and I, I'm going to give you this as a form of context because this is a case that is very well known, in many cases, their life histories seem to have been remarkably alike to those of the children of the Amistad, a famous ship uh, that probably many of you know, recently the focus as well of an excellent book by Benjamin Lawrence. Like many of the children of the Amistad, those of the Arrogante had been sent to Gallinas from the interior of the continent after being enslaved through kidnapping and warfare, and had spent time in enslaved barracoons located there. Like the children of the Amistad, they were put on a vessel heading for the island of Cuba, and like them, they were forced to endure the traumatic experience that was the Middle Passage. There is little doubt that most of them had been left traumatized by this experience. One of them, Sadia, a half-sister of Mina, the killed men, burst into tears as she told those questioning her about how the sailors had murdered her older brother. Another one, Manu, had her examination adjourned after showing signs of fatigue and fear and excitement, while recalling the impression that such an event had upon her. It is no small feat that six of them assured the authorities in Jamaica that they had seen the crime with their own eyes. Of these, Saru was between 12 and 13 years old, her sister Manu was 14, Favaro was 12, Segi 16, Sadea was but a girl, while Koli was between 18 and 20, he was the oldest, the eldest. These six Africans, who had coincidentally been placed on board in areas such as the space near the kitchen and other limited areas near the upper deck, where they were very likely to witness the events they described, recounted in a coherent fashion, almost to the smallest detail, detail how the events had unfolded. They all described how Mina was taken by the Portuguese uh, sailors behind a sail that was put up by them across the deck to stop the rest of the Africans from witnessing what was about to happen. Sadea, as well as at least two others, described how her brother had screamed for his life. <coughs> Sadea, they do kill me, he screamed as he was being murdered. The testimony of Coley, also half-brother of the killed man of Mina, was almost identical. According to him, Mina had called, and I quote, Sadea, Sadea, they are killing me. Other Africans who heard the screams gave similar descriptions of the events and the words, confirming the testimonies of Mina's half-siblings. Manu, who was peeping through the holes in the sail the sailors had used to cover their actions, described how they cut Mina's throat with a long knife and how they cry out, how he cried out just before, they killed me, oh. Another young African girl, Samu, told how she had also heard someone on the deck scream, they that killed me, oh, but she was below deck. By most accounts, even those who did not see the murder or listen to the man's scream, like this one, uh, heard some of the shipmates talk about the assassination right afterwards. Nango, for example, uh, another young African, gave an even more unnerving version of the events, telling how she and many other young girls had seen, and I quote, drops of blood coming through one place in the deck, one by one, into the hold. Right after hitting somebody above bowling, they are killing me, they are killing me. The, you have to remember that these are all translations, and of course, or, or, or broken English at the time. They, they have spent only months in Jamaica at the time. At the time when the only other possible source of red meat, and this is important, on board was a hawk that was still alive even days after the HMS snake seized the vessel, Many of the Africans interrogated throughout July and August 1838 
discuss at length how after they had seen or, or heard about Mina's death, they were served a bad tasting red meat that made many of them vomit or wretch. Seven of those interrogated in Montego Bay and Lucia agreed that the meat was very different. Many of them went as far as to explaining that in addition to being very red, it was flavored like horse meat. It had no bones and it had also some bodies, as in a human, some bodies' hairs in it. More revealing, two or three of those questions, mostly young girls who were placed near the ship kitchen, confirmed that the flesh of Mina had been cut into small pieces and specifically cooked in the big pot. There is a, a level of description here, destined for the Africans. At least one of them, Saru, also asserted that the sailors had cooked the liver and the heart of Mina in their own smaller pot and then eaten those parts themselves. Intriguingly, Saru's testimony was confirmed by Coley, who also saw, or partially confirmed, who also saw the sailors put the heart and the liver into the pot ne the next day. Those who rejected the strange meat were severely punished for doing so. Many of the witnesses agreed that the fact, on the fact that the sailors beat to death many of those who refused to eat it. For example, Bresa revealed that when they refused to eat the meat, the sailors beat them very badly. Bresa also added that so many died from the Spaniards beating them that he was not able to count them. Another African who also discussed the quality of the meat at length, Kenya, pointed out that the beatings were carried out with the ship ropes. These testimonies were also confirmed by Nambei, who told how some of the Africans below deck were beat so much that they died afterwards. Even Kaikol and Bamboo, two of the forest slaves who denied seeing or hearing anything about the assassination and dismembering of Mina, agreed that another man called Bangba had been flogged to death with a rope and a cat or nine earlier. In addition to the floggings and subsequent death of Bangba, there were other noteworthy criminal acts carried out by the crew of the Arrogante that went unpunished and that kind of show what kind of people they were. From the time of departure, daily fatalities due to the colorless conditions below deck were common, and they were described by almost every one of the witnesses. Various witnesses recall seeing between five and eight of their companions die every morning as a result of a combination of factors that included the unbearable heat, the frequent beatings, the restrictive space in which they were confined, and the lack of medical attention given to those who fell ill. Children seem to have been particularly affected by these conditions, and in a chilling case, one recently born child who died during the Middle Passage was subsequently thrown overboard to the, to the despair of her mother. As with other slave vessels for which we have detailed reports of the abuses committed by the crew, rapes, usually combined with beatings, were not rare on board of the Arrogante. As a matter of fact, they seem to have been quite frequent. A number of them were described by the Africans interrogated in Jamaica. For example, Sami, who was 16 or 17 years old at the time, told how the sailors used to take some of the girls upon deck at night for their wives. Both Kaikol and Bana recall how one of the white men known to them as Papiao, tried to rape one of the Africans called Cafasano, and how when she resisted, he beat her so badly that he cut her eye and forehead. According to Kanduni, another girl called Wenga was taken from the hold upon deck by a sailor where he had, and I quote, connection with her. And, it was, and this is an interesting one, but it was perhaps the most astonishing case of rape reported, and probably one of the most interesting in the period overall, two witnesses, Nambei and Bani independently described how, after Lieutenant Miller had taken command of the ship, one of the slave dealers who had been allowed to remain on board 
beat a woman with a cat all night because she would not submit to him. According to Nambei and Bani, the woman named Yaka died soon after as a result of the beating and had to be thrown overboard, and I quote, after the man of war people could not find out the author of the rape. If we are to believe the word of these two young girls, even after the British seized the, the ship, the slave dealers were able to carry on abusing the Africans under the very eyes of those who were supposed to stop them from doing so. Despite all, all these claims, however, it is worth noting here that each and every one of the Arrogantes crew were set in liberty soon after, as was to be expected, actually, as they were Portuguese subjects upon whom British Jamaican courts had no jurisdiction. At this point, some questions about the way in which the British authorities in Jamaica dealt with the investigation can be put forward. Did the authorities really fail to believe the Africans? Or did they instead chose not to believe them in the hope of avoiding a long, potentially embarrassing judicial process in which the superiority of their culture and civilization could be brought into question? And actually, I just read a fantastic article that came out in, in, in the proceedings of the Royal Historical Society discussing this topic. This is in the last issue. It just came out now. We can talk about it as well. Now, shortly after Evelyn sent his first letter on this matter, which was the one that started the process in, in the summer of 1838, informing Commodore Douglas about the atrocities that some of the Rwandan Africans had denounced, a much delayed inquest into the possible act of cannibalism was finally opened. This was by all means as an uncommon an investigation as, has, as, as they had ever experienced. After all, to them, the accusations against the crew of the Arrogante represented nothing short of an alarming turnaround of the traditional roles ascribed to Europeans and Africans, as I said before. This time, they were not asked to confirm, once again, the barbaric customs of the uncivilized Africans that were trafficked across the Atlantic, or even to question the sort of well-known sadistic brutalities frequently carried out by slave traders at sea. This time, the stakes were much higher. This was a case that straightforwardly defied the superiority of the white man the Western civilization, and the Christian values and beliefs. 24 of the surviving Africans were interrogated through July and August by three different sets of people. There was a first set uh, that was interrogated by uh, Justices Finlayson and Facey in Montego Bay. A second group was interrogated by John Robbie, the guy who received them. And the final group of 11 Africans um, was interrogated by, by um, Campbell and Pringle, Pringle in Lucia. Uh, it was this last group where the largest number of direct witnesses was concentrated. They actually seek out potential key witnesses, unlike the other groups, unlike the other interrogators. Sadly, by the time they testified, Finlayson and Facey, who were the main in charge of this uh, whole process, mostly basing their conclusions on, bi on a biased letter sent by Lieutenant Miller, on the subjective opinion of Robbie, and on the erratic deposition of Bamboo, one of the Africans, had concluded, and I, saw, and I quote, that there was no sufficient evidence to substantiate the allegation that the slaving questions were subsisted on human flesh during the voyage, end of a quote. An inference that seems to have satisfied the colonial authorities in Kingston, and the Secretary of State for War, and the colonist Lord Glenet in London, even though the investigation was not entirely closed. Lieutenant Miller's letter of July the 6th, in particular, was quite damaging to the African's cause. In this missive, he stated his disbelief that something so horrible could have happened on the ship without him being informed. Lieutenant Miller also based his opinion on the fact that there were two Africans, recaptive, recaptured Africans, 
on board who were able to speak English and who never told him a word about these brutalities. And he also relied on his one-sided appreciation of the arrogant captain with whom he had become very well acquainted and who he considered, and I quote, to be inoffensive and not capable of such a horrible transaction. All the circumstantial arguments presented by Miller in this letter were quite problematic and highly questionable, and yet they were readily accepted by Joseph S. Finlayson of Facey. His assumption that the slave trade ship captain, that according to his own words, had carried out six voyages to Africa, was inoffensive or incapable of allowing such a monstrosity, was naive at best and perhaps revealed his own internal struggle to comprehend the magnitude of the accusations that had been leveled against the ship crew. Furthermore, his supposition that an event like the one described by the Africans could not have taken place without him being informed was at best an incredulous attempt to conceal his own, own ineptitude and possible, possible uh, culpability. This is especially the case if we consider that the young African girl was beaten to death through the night by one of the sailors on board of the ship after he had assumed command without him ever hearing of it. Moreover, Lieutenant Miller's strongest argument was his reliance on the testimonies of these two recaptured Africans who were found on board of the Arrogante and who were able to speak English. What Lieutenant Miller failed to disclose at the time is that both of them, Kay and Tom, had spent an entire voyage in chains below deck, as they actually asserted months later before John Robbie, uh, thus rendering their personal experiences uh, uh, useless in this case. John Robbie's take on the matter was just as subjective. As far as he was concerned, the Africans he had talked to about the issue could not give him precise information on whether human flesh had been served to them or not. Regardless, and contradicting himself, he twice confirmed that upon their arrival, the belief on the authenticity of the incident was, and I quote, very prevalent among them. And he also admitted that they, and I quote again, all seemed to have heard it and most seemed to believe it. Just as Miller had done before, the subjective opinion of Robbie the, the subjective opinion that Robbie had formed a priori about the veracity of the African testimonies, conceivably as a result of his own limitations in coming to terms with such a particularly ominous claim, also led him to doubt from the start the fact that white Portuguese sailors could be ever capable of the brutalities they were being accused of. In his letter to Evelyn, Robbie tried to sway his colleague's opinion by stressing the grounds for his own disbelief going as far as suggesting that they should not, and I quote, paint the devil blacker than he is. Now, the third opinion held in high regard by Finlayson and Facey, and that swayed the whole process, was that of Bamboo, one of the African children, he was 11, who spent most of the middle passes serving as a cabin boy to the ship captain, also getting very close to him, and who was considered to be very intelligent by Robbie Finlayson and Facey. So he was chosen because he was considered to be intelligent, like many others, actually. As a matter of fact, Bamboo's refutation of the evidence given by many of his middle passes companions was perhaps more instrumental than any other opinion, uh, including those of first-hand witnesses Coley and Seki, who repeatedly gave very similar narrative of the events. What it is more telling, when Bamboo and Seki were cross-examined, it became clear that Bamboo's original testimony was inconsistent and that he was either falsifying or concealing information. This is evident from the, from the testimony. In spite of these glaring problems, Finlayson and Facey chose not to question the accuracy of his words. Not, they didn't pursue this. When he was asked to challenge Seki's account of the murder and subsequent act of cannibalism, he failed to do so as well. And his only answer was that at the time, 
And I cite a quote, he was too little, and thus he could not remember every detail. Irrespective of the blunt inconsistencies of his testimony, Finlayson faced he preferred to those of second quality, likely because it was more convenient to them and their a priori vision of what could be real and or believable and what was not. In more than one occasion, they made biased adulatory remarks about Bamboo's intelligence, contrasting it with the limited trustworthiness of Seki and Kohli. Even though they were older, Seki was approximately 16 and Kohli between 18 and 20, and in spite of the testimony remaining consistent throughout. Kohli, the witness with the most coherent account of the events, was dismissed as a liar based on the opinion of, that other Africans had of him. It seems Kohli was not a good African as Bamboo was. His testimony was dismissed, mostly, even more than, than the African side of the story, was dismissed based on the fact that since his arrival, he has been a troublemaker. Uh, um, the police has twice arrested him due to his repeated complaints about his master, Mr. Allwood. Collie never had his intelligence praised by anyone, even though, remarkably, he had been able, probably the only one, he had been able to become fully fluent in English after only nine months living in Jamaica. Equally troublesome was the overall methodology followed by all three sets of investigators. By repeatedly and consistently focusing on the meat that was served to the Africans, all of them disregarded the fact that at least two witnesses strongly suggested the possibility that the Portuguese sailors themselves ate human flesh. The fact that no further questions were asked every time one of the Africans mentioned this peculiar behavior indicates a lack of awareness in following up a lead that could take them to darker places. Another central problem with the investigation was a failure of the authorities to interview as many potential key witnesses as possible. Although by any accounts there were more than 260 of them, only 24 were called. John Robbie himself, while being questioned by Finlayson and Facey, mentioned the names of several of them who could have been brought before the authorities, including Tamba, Tumba, Jombo, Luca, and three boys, no, three boys named Kavingi. Some convincing evidence also suggests that at least half of these 24 witnesses were subjectively selected based on how intelligent they appeared to be and not by the likelihood of the potential as key direct witnesses. The testimonies taken by Finlayson and Facey and Robbie, and by Robbie and, uh, in, in Lucia, in Montego Bay, denote a lack of diligence that calls into question not only their abilities to pursue leads, but also their ethics and actual interest in finding out the truth of what happened in the Arrogante. The most damning indication of this lack of diligence in following up this case was revealed when they overlooked the testimonies gathered by Campbell and Pringle and Lucia barely a few days later, thus dismissing the case and exempting the sailor of the Arrogante from committing such a savage and uncivilized action. This, it should be pointed out, was not the only time that Finlay saw and Facey showed a biased behavior against the testimony of Africans within their parish. Now, we know very little about these guys, but we do know this. Less than a year later, they would be accused by none other than John Robbie himself of dismissing an unambiguous case of excessive punishment dispensed by a local neighbor on an apprentice African girl, probably one of, it, of the girls in this chief. In this case, they also failed to follow procedure, only hearing the testimony of the abusive white neighbor and dismissing the charges presented as, and I quote, utterly unfounded and malicious, echoing what they said the, the year before, without ever listening to the accusing party. Campbell and Pringle also failed to interview many Africans, although in this case they seem to have at least chosen potential key witnesses among the 11 Africans they deposed. 
Their conclusions, not surprisingly, were entirely different to those of Miller, Finlayson, Facey, and Roby. In the report, which was subsequently picked up by and published in the pages of British Emancipator, they stated to be convinced that Mina had been, and I quote, murdered in cold blood, and to be satisfied that, and I quote again, part of this man's body was served to the other slaves as food. Unfortunately, by then, Lord, uh, the governor of Jamaica, Lionel Smith, just like others before him, had decided to close the matter for good, and the report of Campbell and Pringle was filed away. Months after Campbell and Pringle told the testimonies of these Africans, Evelyn was still riled with the lack of action of the colonial authorities in Jamaica and loving the government to do something about them. In a letter sent to Lord Glenelg in November, Evelyn pledged not to withhold any longer his opinions of the matter, which had been the result, and I quote, of the careful observing for many days of the tone and beating of the witnesses, end of the quote, that had been brought before Campbell and Pringle without previous warning and from various locations. Ultimately, Evelyn's struggle to convince Governor Smith, Lord Glenelg, and the rest of the British establishment, both in Jamaica and in Britain, of the alleged atrocities committed by the crew of the Arrogante fell on deaf ears. The sailors were all taken to Sierra Leone where they were freed and able to enroll in other slave trading expeditions should they wanted to do so. The case was abandoned, even by the press, and only when the vessel was eventually destroyed in, the mid, in, in mid-1840, some newspapers picked up the story for a few days. Now to conclude, at this stage it's possible to descend two clear levels of research, inquiry, or set of unanswered questions. So help me out here. The first one relates to what actually happened on the ship. Was there, as quite a few of the Africans testified, a coerced act of cannibalism on the Arrogante? Did such an appalling event actually take place? Moreover, did the Arrogante sailors also practice cannibalism themselves? And if that was the case, what were the likely reasons to do so? The second one relates to the actual investigation carried out by the Jamaican authorities, their interpretation of the world, and the consideration and understanding of the testimony offered by those arrogant Africans they interrogated, most of whom were children and young adults. The testimonies offered by the witnesses were quite convincing about the veracity of the events they described. There is no question about that. In spite of the repeated failures of the Jamaican authorities to come to terms with the story that was presented to them by these Africans, they chose to ignore it. They chose to ignore several key witnesses uh, who swore to have seen with their own eyes the assassination of Mina, and several others who had heard his screams and seen his blood shortly afterwards. More to the point, most of them, according to the one person who received and took care of them after being landed, had heard about this particular crime and were fully convinced that the murder and subsequent serving of human flesh had indeed taken place. Among them, many had similar comments and remarks about the quality of the meat they were offered after Mina was killed. And at least one was positive that the Portuguese, who were mostly whites in, in the majority, almost certainly, had also participated in the feast, reserving for themselves the heart and the, and the liver of Mina. The fact that the authorities were unable to find a reasonable explanation for the origin of this different meat served during the Middle Passage also reinforces the credibility of the accusations of cannibalism made by the Africans. This specific detail should not go unnoticed, as it is probably central to the understanding of the reasons behind 
Minas slaughtering. <clears throat> were the Portuguese sailors acting out of pure sadism or were they more interested in the conceivable powers that eating this man's heart and liver could offer them? Here, one final line of investigation shall remain open. Since we do not know the precise composition of the Arrogantes crew, even though we have the names. From the Moster role, we can guess that at least one of them, Francisco Liberato, was an African or a descendant of African because of his name. But were the other 34 all white Portuguese from Portugal, Cape Verde, or other parts of Atlantic, the Portuguese Atlantic War, or were there more Africans, Atlantic Creoles, as Jane Lander has recently called them, among them, as was customary in many slave ships of the period? Based on the existing evidence, namely, the, mo the Moser Roll, the logbook, and other papers, it is reasonable to assume that they were in the vast majority white men and Portuguese subjects. Had they been otherwise, especially Africans or of African descent, it is almost certainly that such an important detail would have been revealed in the previously mentioned documents taken from the ship or by Lieutenant Miller or the Lucio, Lucia and Montego Bay authorities. The fact, however, remains that we will probably never know for certain, as the names on the ship most are all, are all Portuguese characteristic names. For Lieutenant Miller's letter, to Robbie's warnings about not painting the devil blacker than he is, anyone reading this criminal inquest is likely to be stunned by the sloppiness, incompetence, and indolence, real or otherwise, shown by most of those who were tasked with finding out the truth about this accusation. In most of the cases, we can only speculate a subconscious cultural empathy for other whites prevailing over logical inquisitiveness and reasoning. Perhaps a lack of interest in following clues that could lead to a longer investigation process may have also played a part, discouraging them from interrogating more of the arrogance Africans and preventing them from digging deeper in the hope of finding some actual answers. Perhaps the physical absence of those accused, the sailors who have gone to Sierra Leone, may have also play a part in, in the whole dismissal of the case. The testimonies of these African children and young adults were denied, as they, they challenged the very core of cultural and religious values traditionally attached to Western civilization and Christianity. By focusing on the coerced act of cannibalism, even those who believe the Africans overlook, probably consciously, the more damning symbolic act carried out by the Portuguese sailors um, of feasting on the heart and liver of the murdered man. When seen this way, the emphasis shifts from the mindless brutality linked to the former to a ritualistic cause associated with superstitious beliefs in the possible magical powers of eating body organs coming from whom they describe as a different yellow man. Ultimately, whether the slave traders fed the slave below deck with the flesh of one of their own companions does not really constitute the center of this story. What the case of the Rogante really highlights is the frightening thought that the atrocities committed in the Middle Passage were so many and buried, even in a single voyage, as this case reveals, that they were likely to be overlooked unless some slave trader would take them to an entirely new level of colorlessness and sophistication. In the isolation of distance, provided by the Atlantic, rapes, beatings, malnourishment, lack of medical attention, among many other sorts of violence acts perpetrated against the Africans, became so frequent that even for British officers on land and at sea, they were not worthy of notice, except on extraordinary occasions. Distance 
in cases like this generated a total lack of compassion for fellow human beings that was well documented throughout the 19th century. In this respect, the Arrogante provides us with a window into a world of violence of the slave ship, but also into a world of indifference, apathy, and Western self-righteousness shown by those interested in bringing this inhuman traffic to an end. Thank you very much.